So have you re-recognized awareness after talking? (laughs) Did you find that awareness was just steady and easily available as you were talking? Ever? I mean, were there moments? Yeah? (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) But can you re-find it again? Can you re-find it again when things weren't quite so busy? So, yes. And it's not so hard, right? It's still the same, unstained and all of that. Just, we just got to remember. So, so tonight, um, I want to talk about something, a, a couple people said things last night that maybe you want to talk about this today, tonight. Wondering, you know, if if in the heart mind there's no greed, hatred, and delusion, is it just like a big, vast wasteland, sort of? And that comes up actually a lot. I find it quite quite poignant that you know people have said to me, not here, but you know, if if, if there's no greed and aversion, what do I do? Just sit in my room for the rest of my life? And it touches me. It's like we're so, you know, immersed in those habits that feed, uh, that become the intention for action. We say, well, what else could there be? So we'll say, there is, there does be something else. <laughs> and <laughs> and talk, I want to talk about that tonight. Um, and the Buddha was very clear. One of the statements is, a wise person is characterized by their actions. A fool is characterized by their actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment shines. He's really clear. So this isn't just a, a, an esoteric you know, practice that we can engage in because we have the time and we can really watch all these subtle movements of mind and clinging and aversion. And it's not like just a, like a mind game. And Buddhism isn't just a mind game. It's really about the bottom line, how we act in the world with ourselves, with others in relationship, is how the understanding, the wisdom of heart and mind shows. And that's because, as the Buddha has always often said, as you know, the intention, the seed of all action, the heart of all action, comes from the mind. I'm sure you've heard this, most famous of... Uh, the opening of the Dhammapada. All experience is is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted, impure mind, basically a mind of Kalesha, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So knowing, being aware of what's arising in the mind, mind mind-heart, same same word, you know, in the Pali, citta, mind-heart, knowing what's arising, knowing the habits, What's, what gives rise to the mental intention that gives rise to action. This is the seed of freedom and suffering in our own mind and heart and also in how we relate with the world. One of my favorite quotes from Mahagosananda, you know, he's, he's died, but he was a Cambodian monk, peace activist, sort of like the Cambodian Thich Nhat Hanh, after the Khmer Rouge had basically killed millions of people in Cambodia and destroyed most of the nunneries and monasteries and people were all living in refugee camps in Thailand. And he would go, he was, he was a, a Cambodian monk, but he had been out of the country in the years this was happening. But m- m- most of his family members were killed, so it's not that he wasn't touched by this. So he went in um, to the refugee camps and he would go and, and uh, you know, as, as it was a, had been essentially, largely a Buddhist country, so people had a, a familiarity and a respect for the Buddhist teaching and monks, and he would just go and start talking about metta, 
like the core teaching of the Buddha, hatred is never written by hatred, only by love alone. Can you imagine going into a refugee camp where everyone's there because their family's been killed and saying that? Coming not from his head, you know, but from what he really knew. So he's a, and he led peace marches through Cambodia after that. Anyway, so he said once in a speech uh, to the, a speech about when in um, a demonstration against landmines. All the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So to understand and thus remove the landmines in our hearts is the way to remove them in the world. Really, this is where we start. And it may seem daunting, but I'm gonna wanna connect it now to just what we've been doing here, to this whole practice of steady awareness, watching all the subtle and not so subtle habits of our mind. We've been emphasizing noticing the Kalesha habits, but there's also many beautiful, wholesome habits of mind, which I'll talk about in a minute. But we can have, have you noticed how we can have a really good intention, like understanding the landmines in our hearts? Can you see where we can have a really good intention? I'm not gonna get angry anymore. How, how does that work for you? <laughs> but we mean it, don't we? And we say it because we don't really know, not just intellectually, but on that bhavana mayapanya level, how these habits of mind work. We don't really know deeply the habits of our mind. And without wisdom, that the, steady wis- the wisdom that arises from steady mindfulness, steady awareness, that really the wisdom sees the, the, um, the, f- the false lure of greed, the false lure of aversion and and hatred as a response to difficult situations. It sees through that. And that seeing through is what is the, uh, allows for the natural emergence of the beautiful, of the wholesome, the Buddha talked about. I'll get there in a minute. But until we really are recognizing moment to moment our habits, I like to say they drive the bus. We don't think we don't think so, but just that sense of I'm I'm not going to get angry anymore. You leave here. I'm going to sit every day at 7:30 in the morning. We know how hard that is, right? Even when we really mean it. Or um, <laughs> a great example from a retreat here when Utejania was here one time, and a woman said in a group. So since it was 20 people, I feel okay to say it. So you know. She's saying, I'm really watching the habit of my mind, and I'm really, or I went into the dining room at lunch here, and the, the menu's up on the blackboard. And so the menu was something that I know is really not good for me, that I'm allergic to, that makes me feel bad. So wisdom was there. I said, well, I'm not gonna eat that. That was wisdom in the mind. But then somehow I filled my plate with that stuff and I ate it. <laughs> She's going, how come? <laughs> There was wisdom, how could I do that? And Tejaniya being as he was said, well, <laughs> superficial wisdom, real Kalesha, you know? <laughs> and so this is where the sense of bringing the awareness along with us, you know, while the unwholesome habits are running is where the, bringing the awareness along is where the wisdom starts to come. But what I'm assuming she did, I don't know, but it sounds like you go in, you have the wise thought, and then you think, well, that was good enough, basically. I had the wise, th- I mean, you don't really think that, but that's, I had the wise thought. And awareness, you know, goes on a holiday, and you're sitting there, you know, eating whatever it is that made her ill, I don't know what it was. And then you go, how could that happen? So part of the job of awareness is, it's not going to automatically stop that. We can't stop the habits with an act of will. We know, we try, and we'll keep trying. You're not going to stop trying. And I guess it's better to at least recognize it's unwholesome and try and stop it than not know. But generally, we say, okay, that's wisdom. I've done it, done, dusted. And we stop paying attention. So that's how, how could that happen? I really wasn't going to get angry the next time my partner did that totally stupid thing. But... <laughs> Somehow it did, even though I was going to cultivate compassion. So, you know, they're good ideas, but 
we really need the steadiness of awareness that isn't judging. That that's why when someone comes in and says they've been watching how aversion was coming up in the retreat here, and they describe seeing it all, and they think, oh, you know, they were failing. And we go, I go, that's great. I mean, awareness was watching all of that. And I can see people kind of go, geez, you know, whatever I say, she's just going to say awareness was watching it. That's a big help, big help. (laughs) But I only say it if I mean it. And it is great that awareness is watching. Of course, then we think, okay, I saw it once, right? That should be enough, (laughs) right? Don't we think? I saw it already. It's not going to come back. Some people, you start to notice as... The mind gets quieter, the heart gets quieter on retreat, and as the awareness is getting more momentum, it's spreading out. Our, our, you know, being in a hurry mind thinks then everything should get better. And what people often comment, because it's true, they say, my God, I'm just seeing craving everywhere I turn around. Anybody notice that? Think, yeah, right. How could it possibly be so much? And then we, if we're taking it personally, we go into some story trying to push it away or beat ourselves up or think, you know, there's something wrong with us. I mean, the Buddha, out of the whole field of experience for the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, he picked tanha, craving. Must come up once in a while. It must have a big effect in our life. So when we start to see how often it's coming, I'm serious, that's... That's when the, the wisdom mind is starting to kick in. It's like, look at that. The awareness can keep on watching it. It starts to, maybe not as fast as we want, but it starts to lose its, uh, its, its glitter, its false promise, even a little bit. But that's what we're doing here, and it's not just esoteric playing with the mind. This is to really see and know what our habits are, our particular ones. I mean, they all come down to greed, hatred, and delusion, and that's not particular. This is how human minds work. But as Steve said, they're habits. They're not the only possibility. Here they shine up more because we're looking at them, but that's great, because in our daily life, like that woman eating all that food, they're in the background. But that's often what gives rise to intentions to action if we don't know, if we're not aware. So even when we can, on a some level, control, like using the precepts, that's great. I mean, we can control, we can make a, a commitment not to act in certain harmful ways. And, and, and hopefully for all of us that hasn't been super hard not to kill, not to steal. No, but, well, if you had a tick on you, you know, at least you'd look at what was going on in the mind, and that's the point, right? So we, we do make some, I, some ideas, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to refrain from that. And we can do that in life on a gross level. But on a more subtle level, when we're not aware of how these habits work, when we don't really see them, when we've just continued our habit of looking away when they come up, then if the seeds are there in a situation that's unexpected, they can sprout. Something I, I, a quotation I say a lot from a book I read because it really touched me, by a man named Hassan Bayev, he was a Chechen surgeon, and if you remember in the 90s, there's a big kind of civil war between Chechnya, which is part of Russia, there's an um, Islamic part, and anyway, big civil war, very violent, very horrible. And so he was a Chechen surgeon, and he had been living in, in Russia doing surgery, but when the war started, he came back to, to Chechnya, to Grozny, the main city, just to work in the hospital and, and just try and help, being a surgeon, offer his skills. So the whole book was called The Oath, and it was just about his experience, which was, as we can't even imagine, more horrible. I mean, the, the conditions actually sounded about like uh, the mid-1800s here in terms of the medical facilities that were available. And he was the only surgeon after a while in, the, in this hospital. And he would treat whoever came from either side, you know, the Chechen patriots, the Russian foot soldiers, the Russian... Um, officers, anybody who came. And because 
he wasn't taking sides in that. He said, I'm a, I'm a Chechen, you know, I'm a Chechen patriot, but I'm not taking sides in terms of healing people. So he was um, under danger from both sides, actually. And he ended up being kidnapped and had very severe concussion and his life was threatened and had escaped to, to Boston, actually, by Chechen. The Chechen side is what actually kidnapped him and hurt him. But at the point I'm getting to, just to give you the picture, he said, you're in a situation you've never been in before. He'd never been somewhere where he held a gun. He'd never been in a situation of so much danger. He said, you don't know how you'll behave. And he said, I f- was fortunate because I have my surgeon's oath not to harm. And he felt so clear in his heart, in that wisdom, he knew that it wasn't just an idea, but that in his heart mind, he was committed to non-harming. He said, I felt very fortunate I had that. Because I think it's a wise thing to say when we're in a really difficult situation we've never been in, the habits of uh, fear and anger that come up in response to difficulty, that come up in response to the unpleasant, zoom up or the habits of greed that come up when there's just something we want so much to get away from, they just come up. The seeds are there, so it's, it's a, a deep aspect of our steady awareness practice. Seeing all this is what's gonna free us from that. I was uh, on NPR a couple of years ago, public radio, right? You're mostly Americans, you're NPR, public radio. I was listening to an interview with two men who were there discussing work that they were doing with young men in prison. They were doing a project called Interrupting Violence. And I missed the beginning, but they were just talking about some of the young men they were speaking with who were in prison for really intensive crimes like murder and assault and in prison for a long time. And um, just a quotation from one young man that they were talking to, very young, but in prison for maybe life, if not for many, many years. And he said, this young guy, I wish I could take back that three to five seconds when I acted in that violent way. It gives me the chills, you know? So I could think I wouldn't do something violent, but you don't really know until you do really know, but it's not, it can't be theoretical, it can't be what we wish. It has to be that we, we've trusted awareness and the steadiness of it and the willingness to stay with what's going on in our mind until this is where, this is the beautiful part. <laughs> There's a beautiful part. The beautiful part is through wisdom. The steady awareness, as we've said, it allows for, it gives the condition for wisdom, clear seeing, just recognizing what's going on, the truth of things. It lets it arise. And the natural effect of wisdom, when, when there's wisdom awareness mind, as we've said, say it's turned on to aversion or clinging. If, if there's really in that moment enough wisdom, it's not feeding the kalatia, right? You can be aware of the kalatia, but it doesn't get stronger, stronger. Wisdom can kind of watch how it behaves. It can fade out the kalatia, not the wisdom. Sometimes the kalatia goes and the wisdom fades, but this is really how wisdom works. We see it clear. And when the kalatia fades and in terms of an intention as a motivation to action, what the Buddha describes is how what he calls the, the three unwholesome thoughts or intentions that lead to action with wisdom. I mean, we can try to transform them by wanting to, by making an, uh, a, a set in our mind, we're gonna do it. But when there's really strong wisdom that sees through the greed, the ill will, the thoughts of cruelty, it does in a moment naturally transform. So what the Buddha talked about, and it's not just random, but he talked about three, he took, there's a whole sutta where he talks about wise thought where the thoughts of greed and thoughts of lust transform in the light of wisdom awareness to thoughts or intentions of renunciation, of generosity. Thoughts of ill will naturally shift when that's seen through. It's not like you're just left with this big empty void. 
that actually then the, the response, the quality that comes in the aware, awake, responsive heart-mind at that point would be one of metta, of friendliness, or if it's been more a, a cruel kind of thought of compassion. And the Buddha was exploring this, just a little from the sutta, in his own mind, I wanna, I wanna share his attitude, this is one of the suttas where he's talking about his practice before he became a Buddha. So he starts it out by saying, when I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva. So still his unenlightened bodhisattva was pretty good, you know, but, but he's describing his practice. When, so I want to read a little, because listen to the tone he's saying it in. So he said, I suppose... I divide my thought into two classes. On one side are thoughts of sense desire, ill will, and cruelty. On the other side, thoughts of renunciation, which is really like the the clinging evaporates. Non-ill will, which is metta. Non-cruelty, which is compassion. So you see, noticing these two kinds of thoughts. And even in saying it, I can see in my own mind how just even a little subtly comes up, well, these are the bad ones, and these are the good ones with a little hint of aversion, right? Maybe you guys not, but. So, but then he's just noticing. These are these two different ones, and then he's just practicing. He says, as I abided, diligent, ardent, and resolute. So this is, this is like the language that's in the Satipatthana Sutta. He's not saying, as I was lolling around under a tree having an iced tea <laughs> and spacing out. He's saying, as I was abided, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. Even the Buddha, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. And I understood thus, this thought has arisen. Is that what you say? You're filled with greed. I understand, a thought of greed has arisen. (laughs) Well, we could, you know, follow the Buddha's work. This, and, and he keeps, so the awareness keeps looking. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom. It causes me difficulties. It leads away from nibbana. But he's not like shaking a stick at himself. He's looking at the qualities that come up in his mind with this thought of greed. And as I considered thus, it subsided in me in my mind, in my heart. So he's just noticing. Same with thoughts of ill will, same with thoughts of cruelty. As he's abiding, ardent and diligent, thoughts of ill will come up, thoughts of cruelty come up. And he just notices them, just like that. And he says, oh yeah, when this thought of cruelty's here, it's for my own affliction. It gets in the way of nibbana. I understood that, not intellect, I understood that. And understanding it, it starts to fade. It fades out. On, then on the reverse, he's, when he said, I noticed a thought of renunciation arose. And as I abided thus, I thought, this thought of renunciation has arisen. It does not lead to my own affliction or others' affliction. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulty, leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, Even for a night and a day, I see nothing to fear from it. By the way, so this is a thought. He's not saying, bad thought, go away. So if I I was pondering this thought for 24 hours, I see nothing to fear from it. But, he's so practical, but with excessive thinking and pondering, I might tire my body. (laughs) And when the body is tired, the mind becomes disturbed. So I quieted my mind. So practical, huh? But you get there's no judgment going on. He's just seeing how it works. That's what wisdom does. And then this is, of course, the famous line for both. He said, um, whatever a bhikkhu, a practitioner, frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. If one frequently thinks and ponders upon thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of cruelty or ill will, is abandon the thought of non-cruelty to cultivate the thought of cruelty. And that becomes the mind inclines to thoughts of cruelty. And just the reverse. If one thinks and ponders about thoughts of compassion, 
that in that moment the mind has abandoned thoughts of cruelty and it will incline to thoughts of compassion. I mean, it makes sense, right? It's not rocket science, really. But it's this willingness to just keep looking. And that's what's so cool. What I like is the wisdom sees, wow, this thought of greed is really an intention of greed. It brings you to act on it. It causes suffering for myself and others. Just noticing that, not with a big... St- when I, the thought of renunciation actually brings happiness to myself and others. So I want to talk just a little bit about each of those three to support also bringing the same steady awareness to noticing the wholesome, to noticing the beautiful qualities when they're present in the citta, in the heart-mind, and realizing that just as awareness wisdom starves the unwholesome, it's using the Buddha's language, it feeds, it supports, wise attention to the wholesome strengthens and supports the wholesome. It's the reason Guy Armstrong said once he was giving a talk and hadn't gotten too far, and he said, well, this is why he thinks it's a beneficent universe. And I was sitting in my dukkha, the world is dukkha mode, going, beneficent universe? But I saw what he's saying, it's like, it's the natural order of things that when there's steady awareness and wisdom and clear seeing, the heart-mind inclines to the wholesome. It's natural, we don't, and we can help it along, but it will happen naturally. So don't believe me, but look, keep looking. And we'll see how, I'll give a little examples how it happens even here on retreat. So I wanna say a couple things first, just to talk about the <clears throat> intention of renunciation. By the way, these intentions, renunciation or generosity, metta, friendliness, non-greed, non-ill will, and non-cruelty, compassion, those are actually the second step of the Eightfold Path. The first stage being right view, which we've talked about quite a bit, leading to samasankapa, which is variously translated as wise thought, wise intention. And these are the three that are very specifically named as the the wise intention that arises from right view, from right understanding. So renunciation, it doesn't mean what some people might think. Renunciation means a kind of a, 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 a gray giving up everything. You know, we tend to think of renunciation as, as external, as a giving up of things. You know, going into the monastery with a little, you know, narrow wooden bed and nothing else and that's renunciation, and we think, well, that doesn't really, as the Buddha said, his heart did not leap up at the thought of renunciation when he first heard about it. He said, he didn't really understand, but my, 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 my heart did not leap up, because, but he didn't understand it. But as he became to understand it, then that really changed. So what I just want to say about renunciation, it's just wise intention. An intention is what's inside the mind and heart, how it manifests in the world can have many different forms. So it's not about the external giving up of things so much as the inner contentment of being with what is that allows for this feeding of greed to just dissolve. Because the greed starts to be seen as a cause of dissonance, of suffering, and the sense of the allowing of that to just evaporate brings a real sense of, can be a real sense of joy and peace in whatever ever kind of simplicity. So exploring that internally. Someone's, uh, again, someone was saying to to Utejaniya, who's a monk, and he became a monk later in life. He's not one of the Burmese monks who started when he was seven years old, but he'd had a whole life, and uh, which is part of why he really pushes this practice of noticing this general awareness of everything, because he did this in his daily life, not as a monk. So they were saying, anyway, all this projection, oh, as a monk, and renunciation, and it must make you so pure, there were all this, and he will never really take that kind of, of um, projection anyway. He said, you know, you can be a monk and all that desire, all that craving, 
it still can be there, it's just narrowed down into only two objects. But you can still have just as much craving as ever. That's not renunciation, right? And conversely, you could live what looks like a normal life in the world, but you're not bound to things by that craving. So playing with this sense of, of inner contentment, the simplicity that can come when the craving really isn't being fed. And we tend to think also when we think of craving, we skip over it, tanha, this wanting, and, and look at the objects. And people will always say, well, what's wrong? I'm, I'm, I'm craving peace. I'm craving enlightenment. I'm craving a happy family. What's wrong with a happy family? What's wrong? It's like, no one's saying that. We're missing the whole boat, which is what we do. We go to the object. It's not about the object. It's the craving itself that's the deluded source of suffering. And that's what renunciation, renunciation arises when the craving evaporates. Like, oh, this sense of real presence and peace and contentment leading to generosity. What happens on a retreat or off retreat, but we start to, with a steady awareness, like I said before, seeing how much craving's popping up, if you can hang with just watching it, you start to see how craving works. And some of the magic of it starts to go out. Because isn't craving is like this siren call. If you do what I'm telling you you need, you'll be happy, right? We're leaning into whatever the thing is. And then we get defensive, but that's a good thing to want. Or we blame ourselves, that's a bad thing to want. I shouldn't be wanting that. It's not the object. So I just want to share what someone said in a group. It was, I thought it was so insightful, really, because it's true. Seeing there was a huge craving to scratch an itch. And have you noticed, like, there can be a huge craving when you're walking just to look at who's walking by? Have you noticed? And you, like, you feel like you're going to die if you don't look at who's walking by. How strong that craving can be, right? You know what I mean? And this person noticed that they, this was a, that kind of a craving for something, scratch an itch, whatever. They noticed, oh my gosh, it just popped in their mind. This is the same level and intensity of craving I remember back from high school when I had a huge desire crush on somebody. It's the same level of craving for something so innocuous as scratching. That's right. That's it. So seeing craving on retreat, when you think, how can I have craving for looking? It doesn't make sense. And then we dismiss it because the object seems insignificant. No, don't dismiss it. This is how we really see it is the same quality of craving. So whether it's craving for enlightenment or craving to look at the person next to you and what happens when you look, if you keep paying attention, you look and pretty much you judge, right? They're better, I'm better. It really did you a lot of good. So you feel worse. You feel worse from looking. Oh, that was great. And then, you know, if you're aware that happened, then you get aversive towards yourself. Or then you say, well, I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to go have tea. Let's blow the whole thing off. It really did a world of good. So if you keep noticing, though, you see, wow, this promise of craving is not, it doesn't really pan out. Unfortunately, we have to see that like about 100 million times. But watch it, watch it. And you'll see, don't you notice, it's the craving itself that's creating the dis-ease. You know, not the itch, not the looking or the not looking, whatever it might be. So say it's for something like enlightenment. We can have a sincere aspiration and intention to do what is necessary in our practice. It doesn't have to be from craving. So renunciation is, in a moment, When craving is seen through and it drops away naturally, there's just this sense of of peace and real contentment and ease with what is. The more the wisdom awareness notices that, there can be times when craving starts to come up and there's the wisdom that allows us to be with it. So there's also the wisdom that lets us with awareness rest with the unpleasant, huh? which is also the next one. All of this is rooted in not wanting to be with the unpleasant. Tanha, it has the story that it's pleasant. Have you had times when you go on a daydream, even we make them the confusion of thinking the craving itself is somehow happy 
is somehow pleasant, we're lost in this pleasant story, you know, not noticing it. But if you really look and hang with it without feeding, without giving, getting rid of it, it's mostly unpleasant. It's a dissonant. It takes us out, it takes us away, it brings dissatisfaction in the moment. So seeing that, the more we know that on the bhavana, mayapanya level, then times craving can come up and you notice it quicker and awareness can be with it and it, it just drops, really. Play with that in little ways. The food time here is a food time. <laughs> Lunch <laughs> is a great place to play with that. So many people mention experiences they have, you know, around the eating and the wanting and going for seconds or not going for seconds and watching the whole thing. A lot of people bring that up, right? And if you can really just get interested in exploring. I remember when the first three-month retreat I sat, there wasn't full like this, maybe 50 people. But the, the food, I mean, it was a a poorer time for IMS, shall we say. Like a tea you would get, an apple, and every second day, two spoons of peanuts. I'm not kidding, that, that's what we had. And so some days the, there would be enough food, but not the sense of plenty. And I would, you know, the bell would ring, I'd be there, go eat. And there was this one guy, I didn't, I didn't, know, I didn't know anybody. He would come wandering in late, 20 minutes late, 25 minutes late, and again, it wasn't as many people as here, and, and some of the food would, would be gone. There wasn't just tons of it. And, and he would come in very carefully, eat whatever, and I think, God, he must be enlightened. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. He must be so enlightened. And I'm not even a huge foodie, but just, you know, that's the, as you know, the hit of the day. Well, sometime later, years later, it wasn't like a big thing, but I started to notice on retreat, I was walking in really late and I wasn't thinking about it. But, you know, I, I could be sitting it before noon and some craving would come up. Oh, I smell baked potatoes or whatever. And it would come up and I'd see it. Oh yeah, okay, cravings like that. And it would just go. Didn't get all into it, didn't feed it. And it's like, there's this sense of peace. You do what you do, you get up, you walk in and eat. There's baked potatoes or there's not. There was always something. You know, I didn't starve. And that... That's the sense of renunciation, not a willful thing, but the willingness, the, the steady awareness that can be with craving, sees how it works, it loses its allure. You just hang out with it and then you can make a choice from awareness wisdom. You know, maybe you're really hungry, you get up and go eat, fine. I mean, we still take care of ourselves. You can still appreciate the food. But this renunciation just can occur, starts to occur quite naturally and we appreciate it. And from there, and of course, can move into generosity. Um, a friend was, and, and the generosity is also a great source of happiness. A friend was telling me some years ago, she, um, she was studying with Sony Rinpoche and he has a, a lot of projects and one was to support poor nuns in Tibet. And so she really wanted, you would kind of adopt a nun, so to speak, and give a certain amount every month to, to help the, the nun eat and clothe and be able to keep practicing. And my friend was really inspired by that. So she, first that's a generosity she wanted to do it, made her really happy. But in order to have that money, she had to then consciously not, she had to take it out of her clothes money. So she didn't buy new clothes and she would give that money to the nun. So there's the renunciation of the, new, of the clothes and the generosity of giving. And both of those, the two of them, each of them, made her equally happy. So it wasn't like this wrenching not having them. She'd have the money she wanted to buy. She'd say, no, I'm not. This money goes to the nun. And that thought of letting go, the craving would go away and the generosity would come up to replace it very naturally. Then you bring awareness, let the awareness notice it. Feel that sense of the contentment of not wanting. Feel this, the happiness that comes in the heart-mind with the generosity. You keep paying attention then and that's the, the awareness wisdom strengthening the wholesome. That's really wise attention. So just, just playing with that. So the two, next two, ill will and thoughts and cruelty thoughts, I'll put them together to talk about. It's more obvious. So ill will transforms into metta or non-hatred. 
which is really simple friendliness. Cruelty transforms into non-harming or compassion. Both of the unwholesome ones, the ill will, the cruelty, all the forms of aversion as we've spoken of, of course, they're arising as our kind of conditioned response to difficult, unpleasant, painful experiences now whether it's a physical pain, whether it's some action in the world, whether it's some interaction, whether it's some thought in your mind, but something that's unpleasant and difficult, the habit tends to be to arise is some form of pushing away, or fear, aversion, aggression, ill will, get away from me. Now metta, let me read you Ajahn Sumedho, how he describes metta. Because when I've just said metta or non-ill will, Something goes through the mind, what? So I'm supposed to love this stuff? Somebody's really acting in a very aggressive way and I'm supposed to like feel all this love in my heart for them? How do I do that? Ajahn Sumedho on metta. In regards to difficult people or situations, internal, so-called external. Metta does not necessarily mean loving it. One is simply witnessing or awareness is witnessing, I would say, the unpleasantness in a situation, in a thing, in a person, or in oneself, without creating anything around it. That's what I consider to be metta. I say again, witnessing, really present, with the unpleasant in a situation, in a person, in oneself, in space, without creating anything around it. In other words, the heart-mind is not reactive. It's not making a story about me, about them. It's not getting into aversion. It's just, oh, this is happening. It's like this. Does that sound like anything we've been talking about all week, only calling it awareness? Sometimes metta and awareness can have the exact same qualities. That's what we're talking about here. Not loving but just the ability to start from witnessing the unpleasant in ourselves, in a situation, in a person. This is awareness. And the steadiness of it is what allows for wisdom to arise. The wisdom being starting to see, hopefully, the possibility of a different response. It's so kind of in there for most of us that the, the natural response to aggression or the safe response to anger or the safe response to the difficult is to get the heck out of here or get rid of them or the safety with anger is to meet it with anger. It just seems like that's what we do and anything else would be weak or being walked on. The Dalai Lama, when asked about why does it seem like there's a lack of compassion in human society He says, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. To me, this reinforcing compassion and caring, the ability to be present with the difficult without responding, without the mind only knowing how to go to unwholesome, this is what awareness wisdom offers us. And it starts with that willingness to be with the unpleasant. As Joko Beck says, can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? I ask myself that a lot. And that's what we can, we can start with what's happening here silently in your own experience. It's not just, you know, a lucky first world problem of being able to look at your anger, at your grief, or how somebody walking loudly really got you ticked off and you're in a murderous rage and then you try to talk yourself out of it because, you know, look at this stuff in the world. I have no right to be in a murderous rage. Look at it. Just like with the craving, let awareness be with it and see how does the anger work? Is it, is it, what happens with it? You'll see, we do see, we know, as the Buddha said, it causes us suffering, it causes other suffering. 
keep looking, because then we think, but what's the alternative? What else can I do, you know? It's the only way to protect myself. We have to see that's not true. James Baldwin, the great American writer, you know, says an enemy is someone whose story we have not heard. I love that. So when there's that, that anger. Now, anger, not being angry doesn't mean, okay, do whatever you want. But it means there might be another wholesome quality, compassion, metta, that actually is a great, really strong intention for action. And we can see more clearly than we can when the mind is filled with anger. The Buddha, when one dwells with a mind, a heart, obsessed and oppressed by ill will, and does not understand as it really is the escape from a risen ill will, On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. So when we're lost in fear, in ill will, in anger, even when we're trying to do the right thing, you know, it's why it's such a a tricky place when there's so much injustice and and so much suffering in the world and we really want to engage with it whether we want to engage with climate change, whether we want to engage with the refugee crisis, whether we want to engage with homophobia, with racism, with just some, somebody mistreating somebody you see on the street. And if what we've been giving uh, unconsciously the power to is anger, hostility as the source of strength, then that's what's going to come out. And the Buddha is saying, even when we're trying to do the right thing, if the intention's coming from ill will, from anger, we can't see clearly the good of others or the good of ourselves or the good of either. So it's like, how can we learn to really trust? And again, it, it can't be done just by an act of mind, an act of wishing. But when we start by, as we're doing here, connecting with awareness, without creating anything around it, whatever the suffering aspect is. And we practice on the little ones here, sure, to give us some, some trust, some faith. But you see, do you see at times in your practice when you just connect, you're filled with aversion from something, you know, something essentially stupid, right? Some sound or whatever. You know it's essentially stupid. That doesn't help because then the aversion goes on you but you're filled with it. Or say a pain, which a lot of people have seen, and seeing the aversion, seeing the fear, seeing eventually by being able to rest with the aversion without creating anything around it. Rest with the pain without creating anything around it. And at times people see the whole, the whole sense of suffering drops. Maybe the pain's still there. Sometimes people can't even call it pain. Really this sense of and then there's clear seeing. So sometimes with a knee, you know, there may be something you really need to do to take care of it. When you're in that whole world of reaction and aversion, who can see what you need to do? You can't tell. You think you're either going to have to have surgery tomorrow or it's absolutely nothing. It's a Dharma pain. And you can't tell. We're just all wrapped up, you know, in, in the kalesha. When we can see clearly when the aversion drops, when there's connection with things as they are, Wisdom lets us see what to do in little picture, in big picture. But it goes against the stream of what we know and against the stream of society, huh? And it is hard to try and, even when we start to know for ourselves, reacting from aggression, reacting from self-aversion brings more suffering. I know if I could meet it with metta, there's more peace and more ability to act appropriately, but everything around you is saying, are you crazy? You got to protect yourself. Are you crazy? Tell those people what they're doing wrong. Get out there and, you know, whatever it is. So to, you know, I think Steve said, or the Buddha said, if you can't be with wise people, be alone. But sometimes we're the wise people, you know? And so we're so affected by other people. None of us can live in isolation. So, When we go out, we'll be getting all kinds of signals. Want, want, be angry, get upset. That's how you are in the world. 
We need Sangha to help us remember what we already know for ourselves. But sometimes we're the ones who, when, we, when you have that deep sense, you know that you don't want to come from anger, that there's another choice. And then your being able or my being able to act that way can really affect other people. I heard this, it was a great story, I thought, uh, on a, uh, again, on a public radio um, program. Um, it was describing, it's called, it's, the, the program is called in, uh, Invisibilia, and it's talking about all qualities of mind that aren't seen that affect our life. It's really interesting. So this is called non-complementary behavior, which I would say really is responding to aggression with metta or kindness, or non-aggression anyway. So this group of people, two families, I think were together outside in the evening in their backyard. So it didn't say who or where, but so it sounds like a suburb somewhere. Having a lovely dinner together in this lovely evening, outside eating, drinking wine, having their dinner. And all of a sudden, a guy came out out of nowhere, they didn't see him coming, and he had a gun. And he just showed up with a gun, stuck it up to one of the people's head, and said, give me your money. And they're, of course, freaked out, right? And they don't know what to do. And they said, we don't have any money. We're just having you, give me your money. So the first response was someone says, what would your mother think? What would your mother think if she saw you doing this, you know? And he says, I don't have a mother. Give me your money. And really, the gun was to somebody's head. And at this point, one of the people said, would you like a glass of wine? He said, huh? So, okay, well, and he sat down. <laughs> had a glass of wine, they started talking, kept on going, you know, and they were scared. You know, it's not like they're like, oh, la, la, they were scared. But they really had a wine, they were having conversation with him, and after a while he goes, you know, I really see, I, I came to the wrong place. <laughs> so he said, okay, he'd go, and he got up and he wanted hugs from everybody. <laughs> and then he took a glass of wine and went off. Well, they ran into the house like crazy, locked all the doors, right? But he went off, he didn't come back, and then later when they went and opened the door, he'd taken that glass that he'd drunk the wine, he'd, he'd left it very carefully on the curb and went away. Cool, huh? So to, to come from that place, it takes a real trust, doesn't it? And knowing that's what can come from the steady mindfulness awareness, you know? I love stories like that. And then I think what also can bring it in is when our habit of, of um, not wanting to bring full attention to difficult, unpleasant situations, how that feeds the thoughts of separation. Like James Baldwin said, you know, an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. So we don't want to hear their story. We don't want to connect. We just, it's a lot of what goes on in the world. So another story I heard on the radio um, about the refugee crisis in, in Europe uh, this was last fall, I think. So do you remember? If you know, there's a, one of the big refugee camps in Calais, just uh, in, in France. I think they've actually destroyed it. But so it was, I think it was last fall. And there was you know, th- a couple thousand people there living in really not very good conditions. And they were all, they were all trying to get out and, and go to England. So, you know, there's a kind of a lot of upheaval, but they weren't being violent or anything. And so the um, BBC reporter was going around just talking to normal citizens in Calais. And, and so he ended up, he was talking to this one just kind of middle-aged French lady, and she was just saying, oh, you know, how she hates these refugees, and they should go back, and they're just causing trouble, and, you know, and typical what we'd hear, right, a virgin. And he said, well, have you ever actually been there in the jungle? And she said, no. And somehow he talked her into going there with him. And so she went in with him. And this is it. This, this is like awareness with him, just connection with what is different from our ideas about it, right? So she went in there with him, and he was talking to some young men, and she was talking to one of the young, young men from, I don't know if he was from Iraq or Syria, and he was just describing how hard it was. He's in his early 20s. He just wants to work, and there's no work there, and there's nothing to do. And if he moves, goes, if he goes for a walk in the street, he feels really unsafe, targeted by the truckers, targeted by police, and all he wants to do is work. And so she's going, she goes, wow, these conditions are awful. These people are good. They don't have enough food. They don't have anything to do. So she went to their, the, like the, 
the main office of the camp and volunteered. She became involved in wanting to volunteer and help. Just like that, it's like, it's a natural effect of clear seeing is that, you know, non-hatred arises when we see things as they are. It, we, can, we can also know that and, and turn our attention to that and wise attention will strengthen that possibility. But this is what Guy means when he says it's a beneficent universe. This is how it works. When we see clearly how hatred brings separation, how fear brings separation, how aversion even to a pain brings separation and more suffering, just the willingness to, it's like this, not wanting something, just it's like this now, can change everything. So you still have some time here, notice. Just notice the little times because it's the same mind, it's the same process, it's the same habits as in the big pictures. And you can learn to trust it from the little, that's the beauty of practice. But it doesn't mean we can't see the same thing in our daily life. So that's our path. The attitude that the mind, the awareness is meeting the experience right now, how we meet, not we, but how awareness, mindfulness meets this experience, whether it's with simple interest, curiosity, kindness, whether it's through, you know, buying into delusion. But when we meet it with just this open kindness, this sense of not making an enemy, that's our path. That's the whole practice and it doesn't matter what's occurring. Something subtle on retreat, or our daily life practice. The path is how the heart and mind is meeting this moment. That's where the awareness is our, as Steve was pointing out this morning, it's always available, always. You just have to think about it. And when there's more steadiness of awareness, the truth of how things are reveals itself. That's just like the law of nature, like gravity. So. We can take in information, I mean, I'm blabbing, you're taking in information or not, but we can, we, so we can know, okay, maybe non-greed is more wholesome and more happiness producing than greed. So that's a piece of information. It can incline us to look and see, well, is this so? Look and see, how do we meet? When we're dealing with the neighbor in the upstairs apartment who's stomping around every night at four in the morning, how we meet all the aspects of that. That's our path of awareness and wakefulness and wisdom. Changing the diapers, driving in traffic, great one, you know. So it might not be as refined awareness, but awareness is always available. This is what we do here. This is what we take with us, no matter what aspect of our life. How do we meet this moment? Utejaniya, a few years ago, I won't even get into it, but the politics in Burmese monasteries is um, Baroque and uh, pretty out there, you know. So anyways, a whole bunch of bad stuff was going on. And he was kind of the target of gossip. That's how they do it in Burma. They, they, oh, everything's fine, and there's all this background gossip. And people were saying bad stuff about him and trying to isolate him and saying lies and things. And I was just having a conversation with him and... I say, well, this, this other monk is saying all these lies about you and trying to turn people against you. And, you know, he was just, just being quiet. He wasn't doing anything. And I said, well, why don't you just at least say, you know, what's true? You don't have to say something bad about him, but just say what's true. And he says, you know, I just don't... Kusala means wholesome. Akusala means unwholesome. He goes, you know, I just don't want to add any more akusala to the situation. I love that. Just kind of see this, this, all this unwholesome stuff going on. I'm just not adding unwholesomeness to it. You know, it's out of our control. All we can know if there's awareness is our motivation, and even often that not. We never know how our actions are going to land. We can't know the effect of any action. The awareness and the motivation, the quality of our mind, that's all we can really know. So he's saying, okay, taking a stand there, not creating more akusala. That's really our practice of mindfulness, awareness, wisdom. I'll just end with one line from Desmond Tutu. He was giving a talk to a bunch of uh, young college students in Boston. And one of them was saying, you know, 
were coming and they were, I, I think they were kids from um, difficult areas of the city. And the, so anyway, this one, one student was saying, you know, we, we live in the midst of a culture of violence. There's violence all around us. How, how, how are we supposed to love? You know, we grow up with hate. And, he, and Desmond Tutu said, no, you, we learn to hate. That's not our truest nature. That's not the truest nature of mind and heart. And he just was looking, you could tell he was looking at each person, going, you make a difference. You can make a difference. You, you, you. One person can make a big difference. So start with yourself. So that's, I think, what I wanted to talk about tonight. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We'll just sit for a moment. So some more time for playing with awareness and wisdom. If you have energy, please come back at the next sitting. If you're really tired, doing the obvious, what wisdom tells you will support your awareness. <laughs>